When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, Shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. An epic matchup between your two favorite teams, and you're at the game getting the most from what it means to be here with American Express. You breeze through the card member entrance, stop by the lounge, now it's almost tip-off, and everyone's already on their feet. This is going to be good. See how to elevate your live sports experience at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply. How is it possible with what we already knew then that... Steve was still being cleared to play after suffering five concussive hits in the period of a few weeks. I'm the wrong person to ask that question because I don't think there's a good answer. So if you, if you find one, let me know. Welcome to The Real Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. When we first met Paul Montador on Real Sports in 2018, he was still mourning the loss of his son Steve. Steve Montador was a former NHL player whose career became defined by repeated concussions, one after the other. He'd work his way back onto the ice, cleared by NHL doctors, until he would suffer yet another blow to the head and the cycle would repeat itself. So when Montador died suddenly at the age of 35 and was later diagnosed with the degenerative brain disease chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE, it raised serious questions as to how the NHL protects or fails to protect its players. In the years since Montador's death, these questions have remained, and even more concerns over the health of NHL players have begun to surface. For instance, there's been a growing discussion about drug use in the NHL, and whether teams overprescribe opioid pain pills and other dangerous medication to mask player injuries. And when just recently yet another former NHL player by the name of Jimmy Hayes died unexpectedly after having battled an opioid addiction, Many were left to once again wonder what role hockey played in the young man's tragic passing. On this installment of the podcast, we'll delve into all of that and more. First, you'll hear that 2018 report about the NHL's seeming refusal to acknowledge a connection between dangers of a violent game and potential for permanent brain damage in cases like Steve Montador's. Then we'll be joined by former NHLer and one of Montador's best friends, Daniel Carcillo. We'll talk to Carcillo about his late friend and hear his perspective on an NHL culture that he and others believe still too often minimizes injury and embraces liberal prescription of pain medication, no matter the toll on players. All that to come, but first, here's David Scott's 2018 Real Sports Report. Hockey has lost another former player far too young. Longtime NHL defenseman Steve Montador was found unconscious Sunday at his home in Mississauga, Ontario. When Steve Montador died in 2015 with a cocktail of drugs in his system, he was just 35 years of age, recently retired from the NHL and expecting his first child within days. It was overwhelming. 
uh, a whole day and and afterwards is, is pretty much a blur for sure. They say it's um, one of the hardest things in life to bear, to bury a child. I don't know how to explain it, and I, I don't want to because it's, you don't wish it on anyone. Paul Montador believes his son's 10-year NHL career, which included 19 concussions by one count, had ravaged Steve's brain and near the end had forever changed his son from a guy who lit up the room to a recluse with little impulse control and severe memory loss. He was not the same person that he was 10 years before or five years before. Difficult part for him and for those close to him was you didn't know whether it would ever get better. It only got worse, and after he died, Montador was diagnosed with chronic traumatic encephalopathy, or CTE, the brain disease that causes memory loss, depression, and dementia, and is often accompanied by substance abuse. Paul, in the end, what killed your son? What brought him down was concussions and the fact that he had too many and he came back and played and got more. CTE ultimately was his downfall. But if Paul Montador thinks hockey killed his son, the NHL begs to differ. After doctors announced that Steve Montador's brain showed extensive evidence of CTE, in a statement the league said they do not agree that this establishes any link between Steve's death and his NHL career. In fact, Commissioner Gary Bettman insists there's no proof that hockey can lead to CTE at all. The evidence isn't there to support the cause and effect. As we sit here today, um, Mr. Bettman and the NHL uh, take the public position that there is no link between hockey and its head hits and CTE. What do you say about that? The earth is flat. The NHL's position appears to run counter to a mountain of scientific evidence, not to mention conventional wisdom, that getting hit in the head hard and often can be hazardous to one's health. It's a position that critics say is not just delusional, but also dangerous. A position, they say, that's left NHL players exposed to potential tragedy. When inaction comes, when action is possible, then that's what's inexcusable. The longer yeah. it takes, yeah. the more men will be harmed. That's right. This is life affecting. Ken Dryden was once the poster boy of the NHL, a six-time Stanley Cup winner and an icon of Canadian hockey, what Joe DiMaggio was to American baseball. But in recent years, he's come to believe that his beloved game is in crisis, as the reports of dead hockey players found to have had CTE are beginning to add up. And while scores of his old colleagues are now suing the league, claiming brain injury and a greatly increased risk of CTE. If you've got a bunch of players that are experiencing these symptoms, significant depression, problems with anxiety, terrible problems in terms of memory, you might say to yourself, you know, maybe there's something we should do about this. The NHL is not the first major sports league to deny a link to long-term brain damage. For years, the National Football League argued that there was no proof that its game could cause CTE, a position that earned the league scrutiny from the media. Frontline investigates what the NFL knew and when they knew it. As well as Hollywood. Tell the truth. Eventually, the NFL finally admitted the link before Congress. Mr. Miller, do you... 
think there is a link between football and degenerative brain disorders like CTE? The answer to that question is, is certainly yes. But the NHL and Commissioner Gary Bettman have refused to follow suit. I think it's fairly clear that playing hockey isn't the same as playing football. And as we've said all along, we're not going to get into a public debate on this. The fundamental thing is that trauma to the brain does not care if that trauma is coming from football, hockey, or boxing. They're all the same. Dr. Blaine Hoshizaki has analyzed thousands of hockey collisions and published a string of papers on the effects of these hits on the human brain. He says he can quantify the amount of trauma that any given hit in a hockey game delivers to the brain. In this hit, for example, Hoshizaki will map out the collision and accurately reconstruct it by taking into account speed, mass, angle, and point of impact. Then he'll calculate the strain on brain tissue, which reflects the killing of brain neurons. You sum up in, in, in this conclusion. You write, it is my opinion that an average NHL player has likely received a head impact in each game sufficient to cause permanent injury to brain tissue. Anytime you damage a neuron, uh, it's permanent. Neurons do not grow back. So the more neurons you, you lose, the more you're at risk for changes to your lifestyle. Things like depression, things like forgetfulness, and on and on it goes. So elbow to the head, shoulder to the head, head to the head, fist to the head, stick to the head, head to the ice, head to the boards, all of that amounts to what? They're traumatic impacts. They're damaging the, the neural tissue. And then over time, they contribute to things like chronic traumatic encephalopathy, CTE. They'll contribute to other neurological conditions that affect people's lives. Ken Dryden was so disturbed by the death of Steve Montador that he devoted two years to writing a book about him and what he calls a life diminished by NHL hockey. In terms of somebody like Steve, not fair, not right, and not necessary. Dryden is now calling out the league for continuing to permit head hits like this, which are legal, and fights like this, which are penalized but still accepted by the NHL as part of the game. This doesn't have to be the way it is. What is the action the NHL has failed so far to take that give all of hockey a way out of this? No hits to the head, no excuses. It's not whether it's intentional or accidental. No, forget about all of these artificial distinctions. They do not matter. The only thing that matters is the player got a blow to the head. And Dryden isn't the only hockey legend calling for the NHL to take action. Eric Lindros was once considered the greatest player of his generation. Bigger, stronger and faster than anyone else on the ice. He was often the one dishing out the punishment. But even his NHL career was cut short due to hits he took, like this one. I remember trying to cut through the middle of the ice, and I saw Johnny on my right side, and all I was trying to do was just poke the puck to him. And I got yakadacked. It hit hard there. Shoulder to head. It Rotational acceleration. Yeah, there's a lot going on in that one. <laughs> it was his sixth concussion in just over two years, and he would never be the same again, on the ice or off. What were your symptoms? I was tired a lot. I used to hate crowds. 
Never used to hate crowds. I was fine, and and I started to really hate rooms with a lot of people. Headaches? Sure. What about emotionally? I was furious because here I went from being a really good player to being just a shadow of myself. Doesn't matter how big you are. The brain oh, it isn't, matter. Any, isn't any safer because no. you're big, strong, and fast, right? No. Lindros left the NHL resentful. I wanted nothing to do with the game. I was sour. I was angry. But he says he also left motivated to pursue a new calling, sounding the alarm on concussions in hockey. On the very day he retired, Lindros gave $5 million of his own money to the medical facility that helped him with his concussions. Money will improve the lives for not only athletes, weekend warriors, but all patients. And last winter, along with Montreal Canadiens' Dr. David Mulder, he asked the NHL to fund research to protect its players. We thought that a million dollars a team, $31 million, was, was the right number. Modest start for a $4 billion league. And what did they say? You know, we didn't hear a whole lot back. In fact, to date, the NHL has not donated any money to any of the major centers of concussion study in North America. We can do better. Fuck. Yeah, we can. We can do a lot better. The NHL says it has taken action by relying on so-called spotters at games to get concussed players off the ice. But these spotters don't have to be medical experts and are often just team coaches. Time and again, they've failed as brain-injured players are kept in the game. For example, this body check last season smashed the victim's head into the glass, but NHL spotters left him in the game. This is a case where we would hope that the spotters would recognize that these are high-energy impact, so he should be brought off the ice. Didn't happen? It did not happen, no. And that's common? Very common. Had Steve Montador received fewer concussions or been pulled from the ice more often so he could properly recover, Paul Montador believes his son might still be alive today. How is it possible, with what we already knew then, that Steve was still being cleared to play? After suffering five concussive hits in the period of a few weeks. I'm the wrong person to ask that question because I don't think there's a good answer. So if you, if you find one, let me know. Montador says he doesn't understand why the NHL's owners have not intervened. They can't all be sociopaths. They have to have some compassion for the people involved, but they certainly don't demonstrate it. And that's 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 beyond me, and it's been said by some that Gary Bettman has the holds all the cards and he controls that group. Have you heard from Mr. Bettman? No. We received some condolences from a, a number of teams for which uh, Steve played, but I've not heard from Mr. Bettman, no. And Ken Dryden is also waiting to hear from Gary Bettman, five months after personally presenting him with the very first copy of his book, which calls for a complete ban on head hits in hockey. If he's the decision maker, then this book needs to be written for that decision maker. How has he responded? I don't know. I mean, you know, he hasn't responded to me. He has not. No, he has not. Nor would Gary Bettman or anyone else at the NHL speak to us for this story. For Eric Lindros, speaking out for concussion research is about helping future players, he says but it's also about coming to terms with his own future and the chance that he might have to contend with CTE one day.
Must be impossible not to think about. Yeah. What could be up there waiting for me down the road? If CT is coming, I'd like to know about it. And let's do what we can to, to get ahead of it. With so many ex-players suing the NHL, Bettman's hand may only be forced by a loss in court. Paul Montador has now joined the lawsuit on behalf of his dead son to keep the pressure on the NHL to change the game, which he says is what Steve had wanted near the end. The last lunch that we had three weeks before he passed away, he said a couple of very telling things. He said hockey would be a better game without fighting. He said we should get rid of headshots. And at the end he said maybe I should have played baseball. I'm now joined by former NHLer and someone who was a, a dear friend of Steve Montador's, Daniel Carcillo. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, Max. At the end of the story we just heard, Paul Montador talks about final discussions he had with his son and some regrets that Steve kind of conveyed to him. Did you and Steve have similar discussions about the toll NHL hockey had taken on, on him and on, on both of you? I didn't get to have those discussions because he was dead before I finished my career, you know, but we were definitely talking about it while I was still in my career. I mean, I consider his death a contributing aspect to saving my life. And that's why I continue to just advocate so hard. And and he would be doing the exact same thing if what happened to him happened to me. We just have to, we've got to continue to push and, and talk about educating guys. You're at risk. This is the way the league is, so protect yourself and others. If Steve's medical treatment had been handled differently, his return to play clearance after all those concussions, do you think he's still alive today? If he didn't sustain those four concussions in 12 weeks, I saw a complete shift in who he was and how he was acting, and there was no help. I have to think that, I want to think that he would still be here today from everything that I witnessed. I mean, it's crazy to think that, you know, somebody can be cleared by medical professionals when everybody shares these medical records 19 times. That's on average, I've gone back and done it, right? So every 32 games, he was getting cleared for a concussion if you average it out along his career. You know, it's pretty wild. We did that piece almost four years ago now, Daniel. Has the NHL, since we aired, to your knowledge, softened its stance and conceded the link between concussions suffered playing hockey and CTE? No. They are the last professional sports league to admit a link between repetitive head trauma, not just concussion, leading to neurodegenerative disease and not just CTE, ALS, dementia. You know, we see it in soccer, three and a half more times likely to get dementia if you're continuing to have the ball. But no, they have not. I want to ask you about another former player, Derek Bogard. Uh, A little context for our audience. Years before Steve Montador's death, back in 2011, Bogard passed away from a, a drug overdose. Now, he suffered from CTE as well, we found out. But a big part of his story was addiction and the fact that he had been very liberally prescribed opioid pain pills by NHL doctors. In fact, During the 2008-2009 season alone, he was reportedly, according to medical records, prescribed 1,021 pills 
by roughly a dozen different doctors. Now, to me, Daniel, those are shocking numbers. What about for you? Well, what's shocking is, like when I was in the league, doctors uh, would be able to walk up and down the aisle and just hand out whatever we asked for. So we wouldn't even need a prescription. What's shocking to me is that medical professionals can be that, I don't want to say callous, but just that naive. So addiction is powerful. I wish that, again, just like traumatic brain injury, there was more education of what an opiate is and what it can do to you and how you can guard against withdrawal and addiction. And um, for somebody like Derek and somebody like me, I've had I've gone through opiate addiction in my career. It feels really good to just not be in pain. And um, after five days, what the studies show, if you are hooked after five days, that's what it shows. But nobody ever talks about that. Well, that's what I was going to ask you, having dealt with this a bit yourself. Conversations with medical professionals at teams, was there any sort of education? Was there any sort of warning when they would hand you some pills to take? You just knew Ambien put you to sleep. You knew muscle relaxers relaxed your muscles. You knew after a surgery that opiates would help take your pain away, but that's it. The less you know, the better, right? It's very cult-like, and and the more questions you're asking, the worse off you are because no doctor wants to be questioned, no assistant coach or coach wants to hear that somebody is going against the standard norm where all these other 21 guys are just blindly going forward into it. Well, we got this one outlier. What should we do with him? Because he's asking questions that probably should be asked, but they're questions nonetheless. And we don't like that. So it's just you got to tread extremely lightly with that. So you couldn't say no. I mean, if there was a medical prescription given to you or if you were coming out of surgery and you said, you know, I, I don't want to take this, you're saying it was very difficult to push back. You're in it. And this is a medical professional and you're a hockey player. You're playing in a billion dollar industry. You think that this person actually does have your best interest because the way trainers lose their job is if they have less man games lost. Right. And again, that's something you don't really realize till you get out. Right. Like, so they're incentivized to get you back in the game. You're incentivized to get back in the game because you're a pro athlete. And if you don't, if you miss one game, and a prospect, and I'm 30, and a prospect comes up and he plays one good game, he'll get another shot that next game. If he plays good again, you're pretty much done. I referenced it in the intro to this podcast. There was another recent NHL tragedy, as you know, in August, former NHLer Jimmy Hayes died at the age of 31. His autopsy revealed that he had cocaine and fentanyl in his system, and his family recently came out to discuss what they say was an opioid addiction he had battled ever since he was first prescribed pills as an NHL player. How did you react when you read his story? It's sad. It's tragic. It's something that I went through. It's something that almost killed me. That's why I talk the way I talk. And I watched my friend pass away. Jimmy's gone now. Bugart, he's, Derek's gone. There's a lot of guys out there that suffered, that had no help and no education. I just wish that there was more support and that guys felt supported. Because there's a lot of guys former players, regardless if they're in media or coaching right now or scouting that are still suffering. And these guys need help. 
so that we don't have another tragic accident like Jimmy. There's another form of medication I wanted to ask you about, Toradol, the powerful anti-inflammatory. And for our listeners who aren't familiar, you know, Real Sports has done stories on Toradol before, specifically its use in the NFL. It can wreak havoc on your intestines. Doctors recommend you only use it continuously for, I believe, a maximum of five days at a time. It's pretty intense stuff, as you likely know, Daniel. How commonly... Was it used in the NHL when you played? And and similar to the discussion we had with opioids, was there any warning? Was there any information given to players where Toradol was concerned? No, no warnings, no education. Lines out the door, man. It was like a, a race to get it. You're saying they can only use it five days. Shoot, man, guys were using it before every game during the season. Like I've seen guys on it for years taking a shot before every game. Every game, line out the door. Yeah, especially in the playoffs, for sure. Every, Pretty much every guy. But in Philly, it was crazy, man, the lines that we had and what they would do there. And really what it is is um, you're an asset, and I played a specific role as that asset. I had a specific value. They paid me for it. If I didn't do that role, then I would either get traded or no longer be paid for it. And so I have to do everything in my capacity to be fit enough to play that role. If that means that there's all these amazing pharmaceuticals there to help me not feel anything, to continue to run through a wall, to play that role, great. It's almost like back then you didn't want to really ask too many questions. And again, you you trusted the sponsored medical team of the hockey team now and Hindsight, looking at that, it's wild. And uh, you think they have your best interest because the trainer has to keep his job and you got to keep yours. You know, that's pro sports. There have been some legal battles. We mentioned at the tail end of that story you heard earlier, a lawsuit. The Montador family was involved in. You yourself were a plaintiff in that suit. The class of players suing the NHL settled for $19 million. You publicly came out, criticized the settlement, and you chose not to accept your portion of that money. How come? In my experience, the last seven and a half years being on this brain health journey and trying to recover my brain health and how much effort it took in research and treatment and the cost of these treatments that currently exist, $26,000 before taxes for each guy will not move the needle. And the other problem is the cowardice by other players. So the cowardice by former players that have a really big name that didn't say a word. So like, imagine the guys who protected Wayne Gretzky, right? Some of those guys are dead now. Where's Wayne? What has Wayne said about all his friends who he sees suffering? Where were they, right? To help the guys who, who protected them. You've been on this journey, as you said, post-retirement, as we heard about in a real sports story last year when you were on our air, uh, you've embraced the healing powers of psychedelics um, as an alternative. Tell me about that. Tell me about what you're doing and why you think that's a, a healthier course for players like yourself. Yeah, thanks for asking. So, you know, when I retired in 2015 at the age of 30, I was dealing with things like light sensitivity, slurred speech, headache, head pressure, insomnia, impulse control issues until ultimately it formed into anxiety, depression, and then 
plans to take my own life over the course of three weeks with some extreme suicidal ideation because I started to lose hope. So there were all these things going on in my head that were wrong. I'd spent three or $400,000 and um, I was five years into this journey. This is two and a half years ago. I was suicidal, kind of looking around my house, sitting right here in this living room. I have a car, I have a shelter. I'm somewhat financially stable. I got three beautiful kids. Everybody's healthy, but I want to kill myself. This is not normal. Somebody reached out and said, come to a farm, learn about CBD. I'm like, great. And then I got introduced to psilocybin and I'd done it recreationally. I'd never experienced that medicine in a very intentional, very controlled environment. And at the dose that I did it at, right, it was, you're talking about five and five and a half grams when usually like a concert dose, like a half a gram to a gram that makes people feel good. And the psychedelics helped reshift my perspective of the world, helped reshift my perspective of my injury, helped me connect on a deeper fashion to myself. I woke up the next morning feeling the way I should and then um, continued on. I knew nothing gets fixed in five hours. I delved into what I knew about the brain. I delved into the science on psychedelics, specifically psilocybin. I'm like, wow. And once I had the recovery, I had the ability to have access to my brain to start problem solving again and start being creative and start being confident again in myself and my abilities, start extracting my skill set from pro sports. I put this innovation that I think could help millions of people into patents and then started the arduous journey of communicating with the FDA and, and drug developers to make this a reality. And um, this pathway, I really do think like we can try to help like a million, two million, three million, millions of people. Do you think, obviously you believe this is the future. It's a, it's a healthier pathway. You've experienced the benefits yourself. Do you think the NHL, the NHLPA will ever embrace this type of non-traditional therapeutic for concussions for other things? Man, I just don't care what the NHL wants to do or what they think. I solely focus on getting to human beings. We lean in with organizations and people that identify there's a problem and that want a solution. So let's take it back to the question that you asked me at the beginning of this podcast. Has the NHL identified that there's a problem? No, I can't bring them a solution for a problem that they don't see. And so I pray, man, I try to send as much positivity to current NHL players because I really do feel bad for them with the leadership they have with the NHL and the NHLPA. I feel sorry for them, I really do. Well, Daniel, I know this subject is is near and dear to you. It, it's part of your life story. We really appreciate you coming on to talk about your experience and, and share your insight. Of course, man. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for today's Real Sports podcast. We'll be back with a new episode following the premiere of the next Real Sports on November 23rd. And a quick reminder to everyone listening, you can watch all recent episodes of Real Sports with Brian Gumbel on HBO Max. I'm your host, Max Gershberg. Thanks for listening, and please join us again next time.
You're getting the most out of being at a game with American Express. The card member entrance, the lounge, and out tip-off. See how to elevate your live sports experience at AmericanExpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Eligible American Express card required. Benefits vary by card and by venue. Terms apply.